Right. <coughs> when uh, Piglet gives Eeyore a present on his birthday in Winnie the Pooh, he hands him a, a small piece of damp rag. Uh, you might remember the story. He was going to give Eeyore a balloon, uh, but he fell over when he was running and he burst it. The damp rag is all that's left. Is that it? said Eeyore, a little surprised. Piglet nodded. My present, asked Eeyore. Piglet nodded again. The balloon, he asked. Piglet nodded again. Yes. Well, we had uh, our passage uh, read to us this evening very, very nicely, um, a little early, I think you'll agree. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, someone out there was thinking, you know, they did it like that. They did it like that to stop it being so boring. Uh, and I wouldn't be uh, very surprised if, it, if there was uh, no one in this building um, who felt a little like Eeyore when it was all over, um, saying, is that it? And I want to address my words this evening to the least impressed person in this building. I'm imagining that you are now feeling quite grumpy. You've had, perhaps had a, a very hard week, a number of really difficult issues mounting up. Maybe your, your life is uh, more messed up than you even dare admit to yourself, let alone to anyone else. And you have made the effort, uh, you've made the effort to come here this evening in the expectation of some glimmer of hope in your, in your misery, and you get this you get a list of names. Thanks. Anyway, this sermon is for you. Uh, I don't know who you are. Now, I can't identify the most grumpy person in this room. I can you know, have a few guesses <laughs> as I look out. But I don't know who you are. Now, I'll try not to catch too many people's eye uh, this evening. Um, I'm even aware that the most grumpy person here tonight might well be me, um, in which case I'll be talking to myself and not for the first time. But whoever whoever you are, let me warn you what it's going to be like for you this evening. I want you to imagine this. Imagine getting two envelopes in the post, a white one and and a brown one. You open the white one, it's a letter from a solicitor. It seems to be a promise that you'll be receiving some money in the future, although it's not entirely clear to you quite how or when. Then you open the brown envelope, you know, with some trepidation, because brown envelopes are not usually much fun, are they? And it is very clearly and definitely a final reminder for a simply enormous bill. And that's part of what it's going to be like this evening. Your hopes are going to be raised by by some of the things we're going to look at tonight, and uh, then they're going to be dashed and crushed to the ground. It doesn't sound like much fun, does it? But here's why you should keep listening. If you are prepared to concentrate and read this list of names very closely with me, uh, then there is huge potential for you here this evening. It'll be a little like going back to that first envelope, the white one, and looking again uh, more carefully at it. It'll be like gently shaking it, perhaps, and finding a cheque fluttering out, a cheque for a simply enormous fortune. So then Matthew chapter 1, and let me be frank, it's not normal today uh, to begin a book or a message the way that Matthew does here. I suppose you might uh, today begin a biography by saying something a little bit about the the family background. You might have a few pages of a biography like that, and those are the ones you flick over fairly quickly. 
But even then, I doubt you'd put it like this. You know, a list of 48 names. Uh, There are no jokes here. There are no amusing anecdotes. There's no light relief. Why would he do this? Now, I guess the the obvious reason that that comes to mind is that that Matthew wants to establish Jesus' credentials as someone significant in the the plans of God. Jesus is indeed a son or or descendant of Abraham, verse 1, and uh, therefore a true member of God's people. What's more, Jesus is a son or descendant of David, also in verse 1. Uh, the Lord's anointed king, the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, that's going to be, of course, essential background for Matthew introducing Jesus as the Christ, uh, right at the very end of the list. And I'll say more about what that means and implies uh, towards the end. But I want us to see this evening that this list does much more than merely establish Jesus's family credentials. It does more than that. It tells a history. It tells the tragic background history to the greater history of Jesus uh, that we're going to encounter in Matthew's Gospel. This is the first thing we're going to look at this evening and we're going to do that under the heading Hopes Raised and Crushed. We'll do that in just a moment. And I just want to say to all the grumpy cynics out there who are saying, ha, you know, history, grace, that this is not dusty, irrelevant history. I hope we're going to see this as a piece of history that intersects with our own history, that intersects with our own experience, indeed, the experience of all humanity at the point of greatest need. Uh, But there's more here even than that. Look closely and we'll see that Matthew is doing even more. His deeper purpose is to rekindle in us the fires of hope. He's laying down, even in these first few verses, the pattern by which God is going to act through Jesus. He is, and this is going to be our second heading tonight, Matthew is showing us in Jesus how we can find hope reborn. But let's start with the the big stuff, the kind of obvious stuff, um, that tragic history of the people of God, where we see hopes raised, and then crushed. Now, there are some things that stand up in this list very clearly, and we need to make sure that we have processed and understood them before we we tackle anything else. In this history of the people of God in 17 verses, it's relatively easy to see what Matthew wants to highlight. Uh, You can see verse 1, that this is, uh, to begin with, a record of the genealogy uh, or origins of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, And in the verses that follow, what we find is that those names, those particular names, which get the emphasis, plus one other thing. The other thing is not a name this time, but an event. It's the exile to Babylon. You can see it mentioned here three times. It's in verses 11, 12, and 17. Now, you can see the pattern that forms here very clearly in the particular version of the Bible that we use here at Christchurch, where the editors have very helpfully arranged this list of names into three blocks, um, each representing the 14 generations uh, that are mentioned in verse 17. There's a picture on, the, on, the, on your handout showing how this pattern works. And what Matthew wants to highlight, he places at the edges of those blocks. So Abraham begins the first block of names in verse 2, and David ends it in verse 6. Then David begins the next block, Uh, which ends with the exile to Babylon in verse 11. 
uh, the exile to Babylon, begins the next block in verse 12, uh, which ends with uh, Jesus, who is called Christ, in verse 16. And then in case we haven't got it, in case we're really slow and not picking this up, uh, there they are all again in verse 17. Abraham, David, the exile to Babylon, and then the Christ. And what this does, what this pattern does, is to sketch for us the tragic story of the people of God. You see, Matthew's doing a very clever thing here. He's presenting it for us in summary form, the whole of the Hebrew Bible in 17 verses, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, Within that, Abraham and David are both figures of hope. Abraham was born, say, 4,000 years ago into a world uh, which at the very beginning of the Bible is described as a world under the curse of God uh, with nothing to hope for but death. But against that background, God promised Abraham blessing, a blessing which would one day fill the whole earth. And on the basis of that promise, he formed a nation of hope from Abraham's descendants, a nation that became known as Israel, the people of God. David then was born, say, 3,000 years ago, and you can see in verse 6 that he's singled out as King David. He was God's specially appointed king, his anointed, the Christ or Messiah. And he too was a figure of national hope. He shepherded God's people and protected them from God's enemies. And God promised that his his house and his kingdom uh, would last forever. But this is a tragic history. After David, the people turned from their God. They abandoned him utterly. And as a consequence, they lost their place as a people and nation of hope. They were invaded, destroyed, and the survivors were taken to exile. And this was another real event in history about two and a half thousand years ago, the exile to Babylon. And can you imagine what it must have felt like for a faithful Israelite at that point in history? But actually, we don't need to imagine it at all. We can just read the Psalms. And Psalm 89, for for instance, which ends with this desperate cry to the Lord. The psalmist says this, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? And it's actually at this point, it's this point in the story that their story begins to intersect with our story. You see, we can, we can picture what's happened so far in the story a little like this. We can picture Israel as a nation lifted up from the desperate condition of the world, standing as something like a, an island of hope in a, in a vast sea of hopelessness. Or what perhaps you might imagine it, and this is biblical language as well, as like a beacon, beacon of light in the darkness. But in the exile, that island sank and disappeared. The lights went out. In other words, they fell back to stand alongside the rest of the world, the rest of humanity. Alongside us, in fact. Our problem of hopelessness became their problem of hopelessness once again. Take a look at some of the names from from verse 12 onwards. and I would imagine, even if you're first class at Bible quizzes, I I doubt if you recognise many of those names there. They don't come across as particularly familiar, even if you're very familiar with the, with the Old Testament. And that is very telling. You know, it might as well be your name there, 
It might as well be mine. So if you uh, have come here tonight grumpy, cynical, lacking hope, let me congratulate you. You've got it right. You have assessed your situation apart from Jesus Christ with some accuracy and it is miserable. Quite possibly, you are not miserable enough. You need to get your act together and be properly miserable. But let me also say to you, this gospel message of Matthew is therefore addressed to you. It's addressed to all humanity in our desperate hopelessness. The lost sheep of the house of Israel needed to hear it first. Yes, that is true. And that is made clear as we read on. But in the end, we all need to hear it. Because after the exile, it was into a situation of hopelessness common to all humanity that Jesus came. Verse 16. He came as a real historical figure born of Mary, and was given the same title as his ancestor David. At just the right moment in history, verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And I guess we could leave things at that. I wait to see what Matthew goes on to say about this person, Jesus, as his gospel unfolds. Uh, but I hope at this point, having seen how carefully has Matthew has arranged this list, your, your, your appetite has been whetted a little. Uh, might there be other things that Matthew wants us to pick up from these verses? And at this point, it's worth saying that at the time that Matthew was writing, it was quite common for some people to get slightly obsessed by lists like this one, uh, which are technically known as genealogies. It was also quite common in the ancient Near East for people to embed little coded clues and genealogies like this one. And there are, are indeed um, uh, some biblical examples of that in the book of Genesis and also in Proverbs. And remember, this is the time before you could collect stamps or write computer viruses or attend technology shows. Uh, so uh, imagine, you know, some, we can well imagine someone like that reading this list and getting to um, especially verse 17 here and thinking to themselves, aha, 14. What's that a code for, I wonder? Uh, well, to cut a long and slightly tedious story short, if 14 is significant at all, then it's, then it's a code for David. Uh, there have been many other suggestions, uh, but that's the, the least fanciful of them. Um, it works like this, if you're interested. If you assign numbers to the letters of an alphabet and take the letters in a name and add them all up, um, then you get a number for the name. And uh, you do that for David in Hebrew, and hey presto, you get 14. And that seems to be why uh, Matthew has emphasised 14 in verse, the number 14 in verse 17. Uh, notice too that David is 14th on the list, so that kind of ties up nicely. Now, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? If all that's right, uh, and it may be, um, I wonder if this is Matthew's little joke at the expense of the genealogy nerds. You know, it's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it, when you get down to it? Uh, the most obscure kind of technical allusion you can find in these verses, digging down as far as you can go, is actually the same as the first thing we notice without any work at all. And the number 14 
I guess it may emphasise the importance of David here, but it doesn't add anything new. Oh, we're getting, uh, getting going now. Let's uh, see if we can notice something else. Uh, so, for example, if you count the number of generations here uh, from verse 12, that's uh, from the exile onwards, uh, how many generations uh, would you get? Well, you might expect from verse 17 that you should get 14. Uh, but um, let's do that, do that carefully. Uh, now, we shouldn't count uh, Jeconiah in verse 12 because he's already been counted back in verse 11. And so we count down through that, through that list, Jeconiah, and so forth, dum, 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 and we get 13. 13. What's going on? What's going on here? Is it that Matthew can't count? Uh, you read many commentaries on this, and uh, that's what some people will conclude. Uh, but I don't think so. I think Matthew is much more careful than that. Uh, I think probably the reason uh, that Matthew does this, he wants, again, to emphasise the seriousness of the exile. In other words, the exile was such a huge rift in history, such a serious break, that after it we need to start again, we need to start counting again. So now we do count Jeconiah, and it all comes to 14, um, as it says in verse 17. Well, notice something else that stands out here. You'll notice, especially when it's being read to us, that these verses have something of a rhythm to them. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and so on. It's especially obvious when it's read out loud, as most people have recounted uh, Matthew's gospel originally. Uh, But sometimes Matthew deliberately breaks that rhythm. You can see the first time he does that in verse 2, and he adds that little extra phrase, and his brothers. It stands out, if you like. And uh, the same phrase then stands out again, in verse 11, uh, Jeconiah and his brothers. Once at the beginning of the first block of names, once at the end of the second, as if, if you like, to tie them all together and say, this is one block. This is what the people of God, when the people of God really were the people of God. After this, after the exile, exile there never will be uh, in quite the same way again. Now, uh, while all these things are very interesting, at least you know, I, I think so, but then I'm a bit of a nerd myself, uh, and while these things may emphasise the seriousness of, of the exile and you know, the importance of David, they're not actually adding anything new yet. However, there's one last thing to look at. There are several more breaks in the pattern of these verses which we haven't considered yet and I think it's here that we're going to find a more serious suggestion from Matthew about the kind of difference that Jesus is going to make. This then after under our second and final heading is where we're going to find our hope reborn. Now there are five more breaks in the pattern of these verses and they are all about women. And that in itself is actually quite surprising, a quite subversive thing. It's very unusual at the time to have women in in genealogies. So if you look at Luke's genealogy, for example, there are are no women in it at all. And if we look at these women in turn, what we'll find is that behind each of them, behind each of them lies an extraordinary story. In most cases, in fact, an extraordinarily messy story. 
but we'll also find, well, we'll also find that each one of them represents the extraordinary triumph of God's faithfulness and grace against the odds. Now take the first of them, that's in verse 3, which begins like this. So Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now Judah, uh, you may know if you know the book of Genesis, was at this point wickedly unconcerned about maintaining uh, the family line. So God had made promises about the family line. Judah shunned them, didn't want to have anything to do with it. He dangerously turned aside from God's purpose and promise. He put himself in an extremely dangerous position. But Tamar, uh, who was his daughter-in-law, no less, uh, did something about it. She disguised herself as a cult prostitute uh, so that she could get pregnant by him. Uh, Let me say very quickly that that was not a good thing for her to do. In fact, that uh, chapter is one of the most sordid chapters in the whole of the Bible. Nevertheless, although she went about it in a blatantly sinful way, Compared to Judah, she was determined to maintain that family line, determined to stick to the promises. And Judah admits at the end of the story in Genesis 38, she is more righteous than I. And you can see from the fact that she's here in this list, and Judah is in this list, uh, that through that extremely irregular event, God was faithful to what he had promised, and hope was preserved through to the next generation, through to the future. Next up is Rahab in verse 5. Rahab, you may know, was was both a prostitute and a foreigner, a Gentile. As a prostitute, she represented everything that God's people came to despise about the sexual immorality of the Gentiles. And yet, when she became face-to-face with the truth about God and confessed, indeed, that he is the God of all the earth, she did not give up in despair. She was determined at that point to join the right side. She believed the promise that she was made and under the extraordinary grace of God, here she is in the list. Just because she believed and trusted. Hollywood gave us Pretty Woman, the film, and we wish it hadn't. Uh, The Bible gave us Rahab, And we're extremely glad it did. Now also in verse 5 is Ruth. Ruth, another interesting character. Ruth, also an outsider, a Gentile. And the story of Ruth and Boaz, uh, if you know it, it is one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. Nevertheless, we would have to say, we would have to say that Ruth won over Boaz in that story in a highly irregular way. Uh, You might remember she... uh, basically crawled into bed with him while he was asleep and in all likelihood, in all likelihood, although it's not explicit, had premarital sex with him. Um, if you're a parent here tonight with a teenage daughter, then I very much hope that sort of courtship strategy that you're recommending. Uh, if you're an unmarried young woman here tonight, I, I hope you can see that's probably not the best way to go about things. And yet, again, here she is. In that messy situation, God's grace was triumphant. God's promises were kept to. God's faithfulness was expressed. And in verse 16, we have 
quotes the wife of Uriah. Now, the wife of Uriah, of course, was Bathsheba, uh, with whom David infamously committed adultery. And, And Matthew, I'm sure, calls her simply Uriah's wife to remind us that connected with that adultery was the murder of Uriah at the hands, ultimately, of David, the murder of a righteous man by David. It's one of the greatest scandals of the Bible. And yet again, the list goes on. David is still here in the list. The list doesn't stop with David. God's grace and faithfulness is triumphant. And all this prepares the way for Mary in verse 16. Now Mary's pregnancy, as we're going to be reminded of next week, also had a whiff of scandal about it. Uh, now, as we'll also see next week, the scandal, at, in the end, actually had no foundation to it. Uh, nevertheless, out of that somewhat irregular event, God, at this point in the Gospel, God is just about again to bring an extraordinary burst of new hope. Hope is going to be reborn in this generation, just as it has been in previous generations, by the subversive, surprising grace of God. But what a hope it's going to be this time. In the women of uh, Matthew chapter 1, we've seen sinners, uh, we've seen outsiders, we've seen the lowly and the humble, powerfully brought into the purposes of God. But now in the work of Jesus, born of Mary, we're going to see that multiplied unimaginably, the grace and mercy of God overflowing into all the world. So as we begin this short series on Matthew's uh, Gospel, I hope you can already see just how challenging it is, even, even in the first 17 verses. There is hope. There is a hope able to cut through to the, the, the most jaded, disappointed, grumpy, cynical people in this building, even me. Uh, there's hope able to reach through to the most messed up, dysfunctional and despairing people. If if we are prepared to stand alongside these women. Now we can be sure that Matthew doesn't want us to follow their example in in every detail, in every particular. That's obvious when you read the stories. But we've we've seen two big ways in which he is suggesting we should stand with them. And both of these things he's going to be developing and stressing as the gospel goes on. First, there is their weakness. There is their vulnerability their humility, their sinfulness, their lack of pretension before God. If we are not ashamed to stand in solidarity with that poverty of spirit, that humility, then there is hope for us. Second, there is their determination. If we are as determined as Tamar and Rahab and Ruth to grasp hold of the promises of God, to hunger and thirst for them, to desire beyond anything to be a part of what God is doing, then there is hope for us. And it's interesting, you'll have noticed that Matthew, quite intentionally, even in these verses, doesn't make things easy for us. You know, he wants to provoke that kind of determination in us. We've had to work quite hard and read carefully tonight to see these things. 
We're going to see this more and more in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is not interested in pandering to people who aren't prepared to make the effort. But let's put those two things together, the humility and the determination. We might put it another way. If, if you are proud and lazy, then Matthew has very little to say to you. But if you are humble and determined, then he has much to say. For such people, he wants to introduce Jesus And he wants to introduce Jesus as the son of David. Not a son of David whom God uses on this occasion to execute justice on his enemies, as he did with King David. Not a warrior king, but a servant king. A son of David who is the humble servant of the Lord, who faces his enemies with love and suffers and dies for it. But who is vindicated and given life forever and able to say at the end of the gospel... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And to the person who cries out, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Matthew will be able to say, he is here. But finally, Matthew wants to introduce us to Jesus as the son of Abraham. Not a son of Abraham who who looks back to his ancestors and as, as, as if to an automatic right to blessing. Not a son of Abraham who's complacently proud of his ethnic heritage. But a son of Abraham who looks back to the promises made to Abraham and amazingly brings them to reality. To Abraham, God made the promise that is humanity's only hope. That through him and through the family line that we see listed out for us here in Matthew chapter 1, blessing would come to all the world. And at the end of the Gospel, Jesus is able to say, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray together.